This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Digital Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, brought to you by us currently. Uh, <laughs> what's going on, Colin? What's going on, man? How you doing? Tired. We're busy. Yeah. We've got a lot busy of things week. going on. Sarah Weeks this week. It's a lot of cool things going on. I'm Sarah Week actually looks way cooler than I expected, to be honest with it you. It does. I didn't expect much from it, but I mean, it is $8,000 a ticket, so I figured that they should probably deliver something pretty cool. You should but, definitely get your money's worth for $8,000 a ticket. But yeah, we're going to go there on Thursday. Check it out. See what's going on. But I've been seeing pictures on Twitter and LinkedIn, and it seems really cool. Yeah. We're going to go check that out. Obviously, by the time this airs, it'll be like a month afterwards, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We don't have any crazy news. If you guys want to check out the vlog, just go to the show notes. You can click the link down there, or you can just look up Digital Wildcatters. I'm putting out some pretty cool content. I'm trying to do it a little bit more regularly. Trying to put a little bit more meat on the bones. Meat on the bones. Meat on the bones. We feel like the we, we kind of started off doing a lot of highlight reels, which is really cool. It's a lot of great cinematography, but we want to put some more actionable things out there kind of just based on some of the feedback that we've got from you guys so thanks for listening to the podcast thanks for watching the vlog so without further ado we welcome ryan dawson ceo of corva what's up man hey thanks so much for having me yeah, really excited to be here yeah but we were sitting down with uh, alex right Alex mm-hmm. Robert, and uh, we said who like, we got to get three people let me give three recommendations and you were the first one out of his mouth he was like yeah. you, you got to get Ryan on the show you got to hear about what corva's doing and i was like all right let's do it so here we are so what do you guys do at Corvo? We are a drilling optimization platform. So we help operators across the United States and Canada do two things primarily. How do they drill faster? And also how do they avoid problems as they're drilling? So Ryan brought us a really cool poster when he walked in with all their dashboards built out. And so they have all these analytical dashboards and obviously me with my drilling background, I'll get excited about it because it's kind of, you know, I've always talked about you know, being out on the rig, like you just see the problems firsthand. And I was telling Ryan about this, you know, when they used to measure the time in between connections when you're tripping pipe, they'd have someone out there with a clock, you know, timing it manually. And it's like, Jesus Christ, like you could write the software so easily to, to, you know, track this and, you know, we could just bolt on to pace on or whatever monitoring system you're using. So get really excited to talk about this, see what you guys are doing. Something interesting, I think Alex told us is that you're not from oil and gas, originally. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. So I am from the software industry. I think if you want to really understand what is Corvo and why is it different, you sort of have to understand my background. And definitely, I'm not from oil and gas. I've been here about five years, tried to learn as much as possible, primarily around drilling. But, you know, I think that is that is definitely gives me and our company a very interesting perspective of how we approach problems, how do we approach innovation? And it's not, you know, we, we definitely have to work within the framework of what is oil and gas? How does how do people work? How do people accept technology? But on the other side, it's very different. Cool. So are you originally from Texas? I grew up in Midland. Okay. Oh, did so, you? Yeah. Yep. I grew up in Midland too. Where did you go to school at? I went to Midland High. Did you? Sorry about that. <laughs> I went to Lee. <laughs> Definitely an interesting experience. I I didn't have any idea that I would be in oil and gas growing up in high school. I've always been in software. You know, in fact, in high school, I was actually recruited by Microsoft. And so 
you know, I actually, they flew me up there, went through sort of, you know, the whole interview process. I, I eventually decided to go to university in Austin, but I think, you know, my parents didn't really know what was going on, but, you know, a lot of... How did, so how did that happen? Well, this is, we're just like, it just, yeah, this is really interesting. So, because you look at someone like me, like I took the traditional Midland route, you know, I started roughnecking on drilling rigs straight out of high school. How did you get put in contact with Microsoft where they were recruiting you out of school? Yeah, so I was building a lot of interesting tools and technologies, and I think I just caught the eye of a lot of people. You know, definitely a lot of people in, in my high school were doing different things. I was, you know, pretty introverted in some cases. I was trying to sort of run down my own path, sort of find myself. And, you know, it just it led led me in interesting directions. You know, I think you know, at that time, it was very hard to understand and see where the future was going. But I, I really loved Austin and sort of wanted, and that was very exotic compared to Midland, and you would understand that. But, you know, it's taken me down an, an interesting path, actually. And, you know, when I got to college, sort of by my junior, senior year, I switched majors about seven times, really couldn't, you know, but I came in with about two years of school done through AP credits. So I had this latitude to really you know, mess around and see what I liked. And so I'd take different classes from areas that actually I, I couldn't. And there was a lot of, you know, friction there. But by my junior, senior year, I'd actually started another company. I actually convinced a guy that worked at a very renowned software design company in Austin to quit his job and sort of start a, a new startup with me. And, you know, to kind of get into the genesis of that, I think it leads to what I was doing in high school, but I was building different sort of prototypes or software demos. It's hard to sort of explain what they were, but, you know, think about making a queue for your Netflix bin or, you know, package trackers, more like, you know, widgets, so to speak. But so we're building all this stuff. And, you know, while I'm in college, I, we, we put up the semblance of a business, you know, we're, we're here for business. we got a website and we actually got this one guy from investment bank in New York and he calls up and he says, hey, I'd like to do this project. And so I give him the quote. And, you know, I'm really, you got to understand like two, three thousand dollars is a is a lot for me. I'm a college student. And I give him this quote and, you know, my voice probably spikes and I'm saying it's going to be one hundred and twenty thousand dollars, you know, and he goes, well, you know, what if we triple that? And so <laughs> so I, I, I call my partner and I say, hey, we're in business. <laughs> so just so that I can have a frame of reference for timing, what year did you graduate high school? 2003. Okay. So yeah, I mean, this is like really, I mean, you're working on some technological things, you know, where this wasn't really a thought, you know, from a lot of people, especially in oil and gas industry. So this is kind of like really in the, in the early times before, you know, you have all these big software. So, okay. So that's really interesting. So you go off, you're in college. You put out this six-figure bid for this project, then what happens? Yeah, so we created essentially a software innovation company in Austin. And this is not a really big company. It's pretty small. It was, you know, you could think of it as a lifestyle company. I mean, for six years, I traveled around. I worked with the biggest companies, Netflix, Microsoft, Twitter, worked on a presidential campaign. So a lot of crazy, cool stuff happening, you know, and I, and I loved it. I mean, we got to work in every technology we got to sort of build a really company that we wanted to show up to work at every day. But sort of over time, I think I've always had a yearning to get into the product space. And what I mean is I wanted to build a product that 
was all your own from the ground up. And so that's when, it, you know, you start looking around and look out what what is there to do. And I'm in Texas, I'm in Austin. And this is kind of before, you know, Austin's a really crazy place right now in terms of technology. But if you look back at that time point, what is the industry that's in your backyard? It's oil and gas. If you're going to be in Texas, you know, you can go move somewhere else. At this point, nothing was all the A startups were happening in Silicon Valley, really. There, you, know, you could look at Austin and you could say there was some great stuff happening, but most of it w- was out there. So I think you know, I'm coming from this background of we have all the cloud revolution basically pushing everything. Everything's getting cheaper. You can run more. I mean, you can put all of this into a cloud infrastructure and, and really run your, your business out of your, your garage. It really became possible. So you have all this advancement in technology. The other thing you had is unconventionals had just come out. The biggest companies in oil and gas had not attacked that. You you couldn't because the the sort of the technology or the the paradigm shift hadn't happened. And so you have this complete opening of, you know, can you sort of build a platform for unconventionals? Because it's a it's a the slate is clean. And so I think what I did specifically there was also another thing going on, which is self-driving cars. So this was happening, and the question was, can you bring automation to drilling? And that's an extremely hard problem, but I subscribe to this thesis that the easy things are hard and the hard things are easy, which is to say my background should have taken me to go be in the world of Google or Facebook. But I look at that and say that's extremely difficult. I have to compete with those companies their resources, they already have the data advantages. And then I look at something else like drilling automation. Sounds extremely tough, you know. But when you dig in, I think that there's principles that I've gained in my life that I can apply to this to sort of chip away at it. And, you know, definitely we're still on that mission, but it's evolved. We now more think holistically about this whole well construction life cycle and think, if you can get all the data into one place, there's so much you can do with it. I, I think you understand that concept. And so we've, we've started on the, the, the journey with the drilling product. And I think we, we want to keep really good focus in there and, and do that really well. But as we attain more data, there's just so much more we can do. And I've always said this. I've always preached this at our company is we have to get to a plateau. And the plateau is really at that point, then you can innovate. And so it took us all you know the last four years of Corva to get to that plateau and now yeah we're we we have crazy growth we're hiring people and all this but you know we're really just at the point where we can innovate to the delight of the industry I think yep so you know you talk about looking at the the industry that's in your backyard oil and gas was your family in oil and gas in Midland yeah so my brother is a oil and gas attorney okay my father was in those days it was more prevalent but a you know sort of a single operator you know mm-hmm. a wildcatter yeah, right yeah. you know on a very small scale yep okay and but you know i really tried to stay out of that yeah yeah for sure so when you identified that hey maybe we should turn our attention to oil and gas how did you go about figuring out you know i mean oil and gas is a massive industry right i mean even if you're just looking at upstream upstream has 
a whole basket of problems that can be solved. So how did you guys go about figuring out we should start building out software and analytic applications for the drilling process? How did you guys go about finding that issue? I think definitely there's trial and errors. We've definitely had our setbacks early on. I think through those, we learned a lot. You know, I can't, a lot of this is built on, we have an amazing team. We have amazing mentors and, and investors. So I think a lot of this is built on these amazing people, you know, but sort of to get to that point, I think, you know, there's an insatiable appetite for learning and learning and what we're doing is putting technology in front of people in on the drilling rig, people in the field. And so if you know anything about these guys, you know that some are technologically advanced, some are not. But the, the, the common thread between them and every other person on this earth is they want products that are really easy to use and good. And so Corva, you, you can ask anyone that we excel exceptionally well and we have amazing visualizations and we have or at least I feel like we care so much about the user and the people using our software. I think that is a common thread you're going to find is we're always asking questions about how we can make it better from a user experience standpoint, but also from an innovation standpoint. And so you might think that maybe, and we do have some deep algorithms that are very advanced and we're always working on deep science, but I think maybe you could say the industry just needed software that was more like what they were using in the consumer space mm -hmm. and what they were using on Facebook. And I think there's a good argument to be had there. I think you're a thousand percent right when you talk about the ability of people out in the field to use new technology. And I think you're pretty polite when you describe it. I can be a little bit more brash about it because I come from the field. And, you know, that is one of the biggest barriers of technology and software at the field level is that you have to make it so seamless that, the, that these guys and girls can use it out there. You know, I remember, you know, almost a decade ago when Payson was really hitting the scene, I saw drillers that can no longer be drillers anymore because they wouldn't take the time or they didn't have the capability to use Payson software, which was pretty fucking easy to use in my opinion. But like I said, that's in my opinion. And I grew up with an iPhone and was able to navigate around computers and software. And so I think that is one of the biggest things that we probably haven't seen from softwares in the past is that they're just not easy to use. They're not mm -hmm. visually appealing. They don't have that good user interface. So putting a focus on that is extremely important. Yeah. And we track everything that our users do. What do they click on and what do they do? And the idea is how do we learn from them? What's the decision path that they go down and fail? You know, and how can we improve that? And so we spend an, so much time trying to get people's feedback. We track, you know, net promoter scores. And the, the, the goal there is the same is figure out, you know, what people like and what they don't like. And it, it, that's always a continually iterating process. I think that's something that's lost on, you know, especially in the, the legacy software companies in this space. It's they become fat, happy, complacent, and they just don't give a shit about the user experience anymore. They don't give a shit about the customer feedback. And then they sort of lose market share and they wonder why. And so then they gather a little bag of cash and go buy another company. But I mean, uh, you, to be fair, at some point when you get to be that big, you know, it's, it's, you can't just go yeah. completely re rewrite your software. So, you know, at one point you're the innovative company and as your technology gets outdated, someday you become that legacy software that's the incumbent. So, you know, it's kind of a mm -hmm. 
revolving cycle. I mean, I'm not a developer, obviously, but I just imagine that it's hard to go, you know, rewrite your software that's been around for 10, 15 years. Yeah, definitely. These companies probably struggle a lot with the innovators dilemma problem. There's, you know, I think that's very apparent. You know, it's sort of a classic setup of you built a great monopoly. And in order to innovate, you have to destroy your monopoly. So it's an extremely challenging problem proposition for them to address. I think that that's sort of great what we're doing. I think if you look at data, it's definitely going to be the future. If you look at every industry, it's going to continue to be the future. And so right now, people are focused on various aspects, but we really think that that is only going to get bigger in oil and gas in every industry. And you look at SaaS businesses, they've compounded over the last you know, 10, five years. They just get bigger and bigger over time. I think everyone sort of didn't really see where the ceiling of all this software cloud technology could be. And I don't see any difference in, in the oil and gas sphere. So once you identified that, okay, I think we're going to focus on, on drilling, did you already have a team at that point or is it, is it, is it still an idea that just you had? Dude? Yeah, definitely. You know, I was iterating for a while on my own, reading SP papers, researching out of textbooks. I think definitely you can only go so far doing that at, you know, at certain point, Early on, we brought in someone that was a PhD. So then we brought some of the, you know, components of, you know, the more academic aspect. And then you start to add in people that have 40 years background in drilling and have, you know, lived on a rig rig for a long time. I think we've only really hit stride in our innovation when we combined all of those pieces, including what are the what's the customer feedback. So there's a lot of vectors that you're trying to track is, okay, what, are your, what is your internal team saying is the next best thing? What is the customer saying is the next best, th- next best thing? And then your, your third thing, which is very important too, is at least me, I have an idea in my head where the future is going. And so if I only listen to the first two, we completely miss where we're going in the future. We don't get to these grand challenges. And I think you, you look at Elon Musk and he has these very grand challenges or things he's trying to solve. He definitely pushes all of his technology teams to get there. And you're, you know, everyone's trying to sit here and think, you know, should we actually colonize moon or the, the Mars? And, you know, there's a lot of scientists saying it's very dangerous, but he's driving that. And we don't really know until we get there, because he he may make all those technology breakthroughs that allow that, whereas if we look, listen to the scientists, they'd say, don't do it. So I think it's an interesting thing. you got to have all those components together. I'm really good with taking and prioritizing information very quickly. So that's probably one of my specialties that makes me a good entrepreneur, is listening to all this stuff that's coming in and figuring out where we should be focusing and I definitely think focus, you know, that's a big part of success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good point when you, you know, bring up Elon Musk and you, I actually saw a quote about this. I can't remember who the quote was, but it was talking about anything disruptive, you know, is going to be looked at as crazy, essentially. Mm-hmm. And if it's not looked at as crazy, all you're doing is making incremental improvements and not actually disrupting or, or bringing technology that's going to move an industry or the world forward. So shout out to Elon Musk. Look up to you, man. Yeah. We're going to colonize Mars someday. So Elon, <laughs> Elon, if you're listening. <laughs> so 
You guys, so Corva has been around four, five years. Is that correct? Yeah. Four years. Okay. So I'm assuming that you started developing this yourself. Were you just bootstrapping this as you were going? You know, you're reading these technical papers. Were you just coding, coding away, starting to get the foundation laid for it? Yeah. So I, I've always been a technical person. I definitely code. These days, you know, we have too much going on for it to really make sense. But, you know, in the early days is, you know, I took a quite a big nest egg from my previous company and drilled it all literally into into this company. You know, really, when I talk about that plateau, if any company and you look at startup ecosystem, this is a very hard industry. And I think for two reasons. One is it takes a lot of capital and effort to get to a viable product that operating in EMP companies will accept. You really have to be at a different level. This You can't put out a you know, restaurant, you know, app that, you know, looks at reviews, right? So you have to get to that huge level. The other thing that you guys have probably noticed is there is not a lot of readily available capital. So these are probably those early stages. Yeah. Yeah. So these are probably the two biggest factors that I see that limit innovation in this space. You know, early on, our sales cycle was nine, 12 months, right? You can't, how can you iterate and find you know, what are the, you got to make your mistakes essentially to figure out what works. And if that's your cycle, you're dead. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I took very big savings and I drilled it into this. I actually had to, you know, at one point sell my house, you know, and really these were, you know, at first it starts out very glamorous and then you're sort of in the dark period. That's what I like to call it. But for me, I think the dark period was really amazing because you're in your garage, you're just trying to figure this out, you know, for, for a year, two years, you know, everything's sort of crashing down on you in terms of your finances. You could have done an, any number of things. And so really it's like figuring out your conviction. What I love about that part though, is everything is in your head. You know, you create or do anything you want. You are completely free. So, you know, it's not like you had, I, we necessarily had a payroll staff. We had developers on contract and different things like this, but it was complete freedom, which is amazing. And so, you know, we would look back and those might be the dark years. And I think my wife refers to them as that part. But really, there were just amazing times of creativity and thought in your head. You know, everyone's going to work every day and no one, you know, no one really knows what you're thinking about because you're just, you're not talking to people. You're just, you're just thinking. And that's very different from today Would you were about 60 people. So everything's a lot more grown up, a lot more mature, but we still, I still personally try to get back to those roots of having think weeks or having time that, you know, we can, I can really understand what's going on in the industry or understand if we have a problem, not react to it right away, but try to think about, you know, what, what's the root, you know, what's really happening here. I love the two points that you brought up about what kind of, you know, what, what the resistance is for startups in this space. So, we talk about the, the early stage funding gap in oil and gas all the time. So I don't want to beat that dead horse. But back to your other point about the capital and resources it takes to build products that an EMP will use. You know, there's the famous mantra of if you're not embarrassed of your, your first product that you ship too late, you know, or whatever. And that doesn't work in oil and gas. You know, you can't be shipping shitty products to EMPs and expect to get any adoption from it. You know, to be able to build that enterprise grade software from the get go 
takes a lot. You know, it takes a lot to get to the, you know, just from zero years. to one. So, yeah. If you're bootstrapping, it's years. And yeah. I, I don't think that, you know, the coastal VCs understand this. I don't think that anybody within Houston understands this. And, you know, the only people that understand it are the, the builders that are doing it themselves. So, that's, you know, we're starting to see some accelerators and things of that nature, you know, popping up here in Houston that are kind of trying to provide some infrastructure for the startups, but it's definitely an uphill battle still. But yeah, but like you mentioned, you can't just put together, like you can't just code up like a, a super lightweight B2C type app, like, a, you know, like a, a Yelp for dog food or something. You know? Yeah, let me go. Spend the night. This is enterprise level stuff and probably arguably one of the most complex industries on the face of the earth. Yeah, I mean, you go on product hunt, people are launching products every day and, it, you know, those are easy to, I mean, I say easy, I couldn't do it myself, but, you know, these people can spin up those products easy and it's just not like that in, in oil and gas. You don't have that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, look at someone like Noah Kagan. Noah Kagan can go and, you know, spin up mint.com or Sumo or any number of products and make a lot of money off of it. And, you know, it's a lot lower barrier in those, in those uh, consumer spaces than it is in oil and gas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, we can kind of transition over. So you mentioned investors earlier. Did you guys go get seed capital? What did you guys do once you kind of really started putting some structure around this? And how did you start scaling it up? So essentially, we went through one early trial with a an operator. And at that point, we were not selected to sort of move forward with. So this was a big one, big turning point in the company. We, you know, this sort of goes back to the you have to have everything perfect from a service level and also from a product level and it's extremely difficult to get to that point so after sort of not being selected you know which was a really good you know we gave a great effort and it was very close i sort of ran out of money you know so you know there needed to be some decisions made and we linked up with essentially a a very small private investor that was formerly the the CEO of Weatherford. So he had brought a a tremendous amount of industry knowledge and he was really looking to do this as a passion project, a mentorship. And so with sort of that capital, Corva actually did something very interesting early on. I knew that we had a lot of technical debt. And what this means is we had made decisions that couldn't last forever, right? We had made shortcuts that it's just like, you know, monetary debt. At some day, it needs to be paid down. And so at this point, sort of in the middle of, you know, losing our first trial, which would have sort of taken us on one trajectory to, to be a company, we had this pause. And with some of sort of this new money, I said, we're going to rebuild this. Because we had talked to customers and they had all said, you know, I like this, but I want this changed. I want this changed. I want everything changed. So what we did is we took this capital and essentially rebuilt our platform to be like an app store. And the idea is it's like your iPhone. It's, we're not just one app where we can sort of host all those apps. And what that really gave us the benefit was, is we could build and build while maintaining sort of this under infrastructure that always was the same. And so, you know, today our team iterates and builds apps all the time and they don't have to worry about sort of changing the deep guts that make everything work. So, you know, with that sort of setback was something that came really good. And right now, as we sort of move into new segments and do new things, it's definitely this, the wind in our sail. There's no question about that. And I think that early decision, typically, if you look at companies my stage, 
they're now at the point where they have to rebuild everything because they got they they got traction and now it's it's basically rebuilding place. We are really we have the technology in place. We have everything. It's like how do we now capture the most amount of market share? You know, and I think the same could be said for our cloud operations. We're running. I think we process four terabytes every day, maybe even six right now. I haven't looked in in the last six months. We do two to four million API requests every hour. Super big data. We have hundreds of servers running in AWS. Very, very big operation. But if you come over to our office, you're not going to see any of that, right? Because it's all hidden. But we have a lot of novel technology around scaling. So as we bring on, you know, we're in the mid, you know, north of 100 rigs that we brought on. And if you look at May, last May, so less than a year ago, we had three. So we've gone from three to 130 in just a very short period of time. And, and that's all been powered by our technology, our scale, our, our cloud scale, and a lot of other things. We built a sales engine that functions tremendously well, proves very tangible value. I think, you know, you could get in this and say, we're going to be do digitization of drilling. And some people would get behind that. But we actually have very tangible results, too, that we can show in 30 days. And that's a big big thing as well but you know and we're adding rigs like crazy growing and that's awesome yeah over so, 100 rigs so how does it actually work so are you plugging into something like payson or are you like how are you guys getting the data yeah great question so we on the rig site there's all these sensors they transmit data every second to through payson can rig or neighbors or sorry and nov uh, totco and we plug into that from the cloud perspective and yeah. essentially bring that into our, our cloud. Okay. So we don't have any boxes or any hardware on the rig right now. Okay. That's awesome too, because you know, it's very scalable for you at that point where you're not having that overhead of operations of physical equipment yeah. and being out there having to, you know, maintain that or install it or whatever comes comes with it. Do you guys ever see yourself getting in the hardware space or are you just gonna stay focused on the software and analytic aspect? Yeah, I think definitely from a company perspective, we're, we will stay in the, the software space. I think that's our bread and butter. I think we might do some things just from a, how do we make our service the best? How do we make sure there's not any faults in between it? But Yeah, very interesting. So you guys are on over 100 rigs right now. You know, obviously you just told us about your original pilot customer that you had. You lost it. Then after that, what was what was kind of the, the process for adoption in the industry? And are you guys mainly focused on, you know, Permian Basin? I mean, obviously that's where the, the majority of the activity is right now. But how was it getting that next customer and scaling it up from there? Yeah, so once we originally went, so we had a bit of a beta customer, but once we actually went commercial, we started growing just by leaps and bounds. We really couldn't, you know, contain sort of the growth. And I think, you know, we don't really have a focus except for we're focusing on U.S. land, U.S. and Canada land. Everything's been organic. All growth has been sort of by word of mouth. We don't have a lot of salespeople. You know, our focus is, has been just make the best product, make the best customer experience, best support training. And we sort of talked about this earlier, but we're really focused on how do you make a very lasting business? So we look at people like Harley Davidson and Yeti, and we see what they're doing in terms of building a lifestyle and building a community. And so our next phase is really taking everything that we have, continue to execute flawlessly, but also how do you look at this from a different perspective? 
of bringing all this together. And I think there's inauthentic ways to do that. And I think there's very authentic ways. And so building a culture at your company is extremely important. And, and I think that happens with every single hire you do. And so we're extremely focused on, you know, very detailed in our in our hiring. I mean, I hire, I interview every single person. I think there's a very big process there. We definitely make mistakes, but, you know, it starts with every single person that's added because at some point when we're 500 people, you know, there are going to be a lot of people in control of decisions that I don't see or that other people don't see. And so we have to put the right people in place and then give them the ability to do what they want to do and to introduce their quirks as a personality. But, you know, we need to sort of shine through that brand of who our people are into our product. And it's it's a tough challenge, though. I think you're the first person that's came in here and like really hammered on the idea of branding in oil and gas because nobody everything's about branding and oil and gas, but it's so funny because we've had this conversation with so many startups, you know, talking to us about the podcast or video content or whatever it may be. And all these companies are starting to look at branding, but you're definitely the first person that's came in here and said that branding is a priority of yours and, and kind of cultivating that, that community and that culture within your company and having it shine through your product. I think it's highly undervalued right now in the industry. Branding is, is really everything. And a lot of people don't understand that. Even an industry as quote unquote stale as you know as oil and gas. Yeah. What do you think uh, on the topic of hiring and, and kind of building that that culture that allows your company to kind of thrive? What do you think are some of the the key components of just building that great culture? Yeah, I think you gotta let people execute. You they have to come to work and be excited to do what they want to do every day. So you have to give them the freedom to operate. You also have to have a good product. <laughs> I know it, you know, and that's hard because you talk about a lot of companies and the sales guy just has to push the thing he has. And so I think that it makes it really easy because we do have a good product. And but hiring is just tough. I mean, I think, you know, as a founder or whoever, you just have to relegate yourself to you're gonna have to dedicate you know, twenty percent of your time to doing this, whether you're recruiting executives or the entry people, you know, everything across the board. And it never stops. It never gets easier. We say one position, we've sort of found a niche or we're getting good candidates here. Well, then we look at this other position and it's stale. You know, we're getting nothing. And, you know, in hiring, we don't have like, we need to, so right now we're trying to hire a hundred people in 2019, which is a huge number. Wow. I don't think we can get there necessarily just but we, we will try. I can imagine the logistics behind that. You know, we're looking yeah. at hiring one person right now and just the amount of time that it takes. I can't imagine that times 100. <laughs> but I think, you know, just at a base level, you got to be very, very picky. Not to say that we have not made the wrong hires. We have. You have to fix that. But, you know, as you progress and get more mature, it's all about just putting the right people in. And so many times you feel under the gun to make a hire. Okay, we have a position and we need to make, you know, just pick something, someone that you have to get away from that. And the faster you do and just wait for the right person or have those standards very high, that's the only way you, I think you're going to succeed as you as you get bigger and bigger. What do you think have been some of the, not to like call anybody out and say that your company's not important, but what do you think have been some of the, the really key hires for you that have allowed you as CEO to really just do what you do best? Yeah, so we have an atypical management structure 
early on, we sort of hired a general manager. And so that is a bit of an interesting hire. And that has been, in a, you know, her name's Courtney, and she's been extremely, you know, helpful and instrumental in us growing our business because I focus primarily on the strategy, the technology, and the product, whereas Courtney looks at the business, the sales, the operations. And I think, you know, you can't really go in, you know, our our main investor has always been stressed this, that Ryan, we have to build the business around you. Because if you look out at the industry of SaaS, not just oil and gas, there's a, there's a structure that most companies use. They hire SDRs, which are like sales reps. They, you know, they, they build sales a certain way. They build all these, you know, they get all these VPs. And we have, and I've had a lot of encouragement to sort of build the structure and the business around what works best for me. Not to say that we wouldn't change it in the future, but, you know, I think we're not looking at this like, here's a playbook of how every startup works. Do it like that. We want to do it in a way that works for the oil and gas business, but also really works for, for me and for other people. Absolutely. I love it. I think, you know, this book, what is that book? Business Model Generation wherever it's at, it's running around here somewhere. And you start really kind of looking at how you can take these different business models and structures from within, you know, just because everything's done a certain way in an industry, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to copy that structure, even if it's just something internal like your management structure. So it's actually, you know, kind of touching back on what you're talking about, I have this book sitting on my desk, The Dichotomy of Leadership by Jocko. And he talks about this all the time, just, you know, finding those all-stars that, you can allow to be themselves and to execute to where, you know, you're not micromanaging them. You're, you're kind of laying out the big vision and then you allow them to go execute and carry out that mission for you. So you're looking to hire a hundred people while we got you on the podcast, you know, we've got a, a big listener base. What kind of people are you looking for? Yeah, we're looking for, you know, different types of engineers. You know, we primarily do drilling optimization. So we're looking for, for those people, you know, people in completions, people, that are in the field definitely have a great personality. We're looking for all, everyone in the software stack, not like anyone else in Houston. People in HR. What is sorry? What is y'all's tech stack? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah. So from a you know a front end perspective, we're on React, which is built by Facebook, pretty much a standard these days from the front end world. Yeah. On the back end, I mentioned that we have a very interesting structure because we're sort of an app platform, so we use basically you know, these no, you know, no server sort of frameworks to, you know, execute our code. But our data storage is, is all done in Mongo. That sort of enables our app platform. So every app can sort of have its own schema that yeah. exists. Do you guys um, like use like a Kubernetes to deploy AWS? No, uh, it's, it's a bit homegrown. We definitely have a lot of the best technologies there. But it's interesting because if you look out in the world, most people building web apps are there's a cookie, there's a template for that. Not many people are building the iOS app store. So it's it's been challenging to sort of figure that out. How do you do automatic deployment, logging, monitoring of all these apps? Because we have 50 apps on the front end side, but also about 50 on the back end side. And so there's a lot of things that have to happen there, you know, and a lot of moving parts. Yeah. What is so it, it's so funny. So we use the React stack. So we almost have like the most probably 80% identical stack. 
And I'm starting to see more and more oil and gas startups use the same thing, which gets me excited because now we can kind of share in the same issues that we've had. What has your experience been finding React devs in Houston? We've had extreme challenges building a technology team in Houston. So we, our technology team is not in Houston, but you know, I think it's, it's just, you got to just stay at it, stay at it. There's got to be at least a few. And so I think, you know, if you look at Houston, I always say this to myself, this is a city of 6 million people, right? Primarily a lot of engineers, where are the people we need? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm always laughing because the the cop out is typically they don't, they're not here. Yeah. But there's 6 million people, so we got to find them. I mean, you're kind of living proof that that's bullshit, right? Because I wouldn't think a guy like you came from Midland, Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, exactly. it's way more common to find a person like me from Midland, Texas than it is someone that went to be a tech all-star and, you know, helping all these big tech companies. So, you know, there's definitely those all-stars here in Houston. But I think, you know, one of the biggest problems has been like where there's no medium to go find these people and there's no medium for these people to come find these innovative companies in oil and gas. So hopefully this podcast, maybe you'll have some all-stars reach out to you in the, in the dev world. Where, where's y'all stake you at? We, you know, it's kind of spread throughout, okay. but yeah. yeah. Cool. So you guys, you know, you obviously y'all are growing at a tremendous rate. You're hiring a lot. What are some of your goals for 2019 for the company as a whole? Yeah, I think, you know, we we want to be on, we have sort of a rig goal. You know, we want to be on a certain rig count. We want to sort of have certain levels of customer satisfaction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we talked about how much we really care about the, you know, how, what people think about us. And I think it's not only apparent in just someone repurchase the software every month, because every month, you know, if you look at typical SaaS companies, they try to sign one year contracts. And so they don't actually know if someone's churned which means they've quit the service. Every month, essentially, we get that vote, which is no one's quitting, no one's quitting, no one's quitting. And, you know, that's amazing. I mean, people love our software that much that, that you know, there's really no one quitting. And so, but we do, you know, are we meeting the right challenges? You know, that's a big thing that you, you got to sort of continue to, to dig, dig into. You know, I think we're trying to figure out if you've sold one thing, you've built one product, you put it out there, can you sort of add a few more on there? Because the big sort of thesis is this can be a platform to hold data and do more things than just, you know, drilling. And we got to sort of figure out, does that principle hold true? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a that's an internal goal, but I think we'll, we'll know this year and that will sort of dictate where we go in the future. I think one thing, remember that one podcast we listened to, Jake, where that guy, he had bought and sold 28 software companies and always talked about he never changed his pricing model. You know, if if it was high, he would always go back to the customer or the business and ask, what do we have to provide to get you, you know, to where you're happy paying this amount and going to the customer and seeing what's really high value, high priority for them. And then, you know, you can base your your cost structure around that. And then on, on that point, how do you guys, how, how does your pricing model work? Is it by the amount of volume or the volume of data coming through? How do you guys kind of go about that? Is it just a licensing fee or? Yeah, we're just a typical SaaS monthly per rig rate. Okay. I mean, you got to understand we're a small company in a sense. So we're trying to simplify it as much as possible from our perspective. Yeah. I mean, invoicing and, and, and things like that. Yeah. We also just think it should be simple, right? There shouldn't be complex pricing. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. cut and dry. I like it. So 
What, what's the bulk of your market that you're seeing right now? Is it larger independent oil and gas companies? Is it midsize? Who are you guys seeing the most adoption from? So we only focus on basically two to three plus rig operators. So we don't go after people that have one rig necessarily. You know, where we started out were some of these midsize independents. I think, you know, in the last eight, nine months, we've then hit up some of the smaller companies and now we're all the way into the super majors. Mm-hmm. So we have seen the adoption sort of full cycle. This thing works across the board, no matter how small, you know, or big your company is. I think really why we focus on two to three plus is because it just means you're running this this rig constantly and you know, that leads to its own sort of benefits in terms of how does data contribute to your drilling operation. Um, but, you know, I think some of the votes of confidence in some of the super majors show that that is definitely, you know, we we can sort of run the game. I think what you, you worry about is do we, did we build a solution that's only sort of geared at a certain type of company? And I think, you know, that's being proved not the case. Yeah, I mean, when you look at, things like the tech stack and just the overall architecture of y'all's software. I mean, it seems like it could be scaled up or down, right? You know, from the, the small operators all the way up to the super majors. Because what you don't want to do is build a software that's fit for super majors and, okay, cool, you've got four or five clients now. now you don't have a product that's fit for the other, mm-hmm. you know, 500,000 operating teams in the United States. So that's pretty important. And we learn a lot from everyone. So the, I, the good ideas don't come from any one place. You know, in terms of the customers, they they come from the people in the field because those guys. So the big thing here is you're already paying all these people in the field. Let's have them do drilling optimization. Let's have them contribute to the success of this company. We don't need extra drilling engineers or people in the office. You know, and I think that's a really big driving factor of what we're doing and how we're successful is let's get people that are already on the payroll to do all this stuff. And it's a big win for everyone. These are all smart people. You know, people get it and they want to help their company succeed. What I like about, you know, that poster that you showed me with all y'all's dashboards is we've, we've said this a lot that you shouldn't have to be a data scientist to extract insight from your assets, or your operations. And what you guys have built is just very clean to where any engineer guy like myself can take a look at it and be like, oh, well, this is mapped up very easy. I can, I can see that this isn't, you know, performing how we want it to perform or, you know, you know, extract insight from it. So that's mm-hmm. extremely valuable and goes along with your point of let's use the people that we have on staff to really use this and build it out. We don't need to go and get all these, you know, extra. I mean, what was that, that, that McKinsey study that we saw that it was like 50% of oil and gas companies said that they would be more willing to use new software if they had the right internal team to understand it or the right data scientists to understand it. And I just don't, believe that's how it should be like I, software should make our lives easier not to where like oh well if we deploy the software we have to go hire a data scientist and a team of 10 people to operate it for us and maintain it yeah and oil and gas companies have a harder time I mean, you have to understand that the bulk of emps don't have tech departments you know and so they don't necessarily understand i won't say all of them don't but i'd say the the vast majority don't understand how to even build a tech team let alone hire a data scientist mm-hmm. how are you going to give that guy any guidance as to what actually to do yeah. You know, so who was it the other day talking about data scientists and I can't remember who it was, but they were talking about like, you know, you hire a data scientist at an oil and gas company and 
data scientists is like, okay, what do you guys want to know? And they're like, no, that's why we hired you. You figure it out. And it's like, you know, there's a big miscommunication there between oil and gas companies and the smart data scientists because they don't know what either party wants. So You know, and I think there's something else there too, which is if you actually dig in, there's a ton of low-hanging fruit out in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I have made these mistakes. Therefore, I now know the other way, which is, you can work on very scientific and very hard problems, but it turns out if they're still low-hanging fruit, I think you should have just picked that. <laughs> and so as an organization, we have to continue to steer back, grab the fruit, grab the fruit that's already there. And there's a lot of, to be said for that. There's a lot more you know, out there that can be done. Absolutely. Yeah. This is a topic that we talk about a lot where people are excited about you know, big analytics, machine learning blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. And we have some very rudimentary problems out in the oil and gas field that can be solved with some simple software solutions. So if you, uh, if you want some low hanging fruit, there's definitely some out there. So you don't have to yeah. necessarily be the most innovative person, but okay, man, we're getting close to wrapping it up. One thing that I'd really like to ask you, you know, I had an engineer reach out to me last week on LinkedIn, super sharp cat, six years drilling engineer at Chevron, very into uh, analytics and machine learning. And he asked, he said, you know, I listened to y'all's Blueberry Capital episode and it was full of great advice. He's like, but can you guys talk on like, how do you actually leave your job and go out and pursue this? Because for me, like I can see that I can work on some stuff part time, but at some, at some point you have to make that leap and go for it. And you kind of touched base on this, talking about the dark times. I've never heard an entrepreneur that hasn't had they're dark times. I know Jake and I have had our dark we got, times. We got plenty of dark yeah. times. So what are, dark what, ages. you know, I'd like to kind of give some advice to anybody out there that's, you know, reservoir engineer or developer, whoever it is that's looking to go out on their own and start something. Do you have just like one piece of advice that sticks out that's really important from your journey? It's a really tough question because I'm, I'm probably not the best person to ask from that perspective. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm an extreme risk taker in some regards. I understand that 100%. Yeah. I am too. I mean, I quit my job last year, Q1 last year, with no plan. And I could not tell anybody to do that with confidence. I mean, like, I'm an extreme risk taker. I've got three kids and a wife, and I just quit and don't have any income. Like, I think when you decide you want to quit or, you know, move on, you really have to get to a point of clarity to understand what is the next thing in your life you want to tackle. And the first thing that you probably thought about is not that. And so what you don't want to do is go spend a year or 18 months building out that. It might be that that was your destiny, but typically you need to somehow cut through and figure out where's the business problem and where's your passion that you want to get to. And, and I don't have great, I, you know, I can't help, but I, all I know is you got to have very good clarity on that. Absolutely. That's great. Okay. So if you're listening to this episode, Ryan's a super legit guy. I'm excited about Corva. They're looking to hire a hundred people, hundred all-stars this year. Ryan, can they find you on LinkedIn? Yes. Okay. So we'll put a show notes, link to his LinkedIn, and then your website is at Corva.com. Corva.ai. Corva.ai. Cool. All right. So if you guys want to reach out to Ryan, you can find him there. Jake, get anything before we wrap up this episode? That's it, man. It was great chatting with you. Thank Super you so excited much. about what you yep. guys are doing. Yep. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan, man. It's good talking. It. Well, guys, if you enjoyed this episode, 
please take two seconds to leave us a review or a rating or share it with some friends. Send it to everybody that you work with. I'm sure Ryan would love it. I know you would love it too. And we will catch you guys on the next episode. Come, 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 come.